Hello, and welcome back to The Cosmic Companion. In this week's episode of Astronomy News with The Cosmic Companion, we talk about a new method of imaging black holes, and we discuss how lunar and Martian colonies of the future may be constructed from human urine. Finally, we'll journey back 14 centuries to ancient Japan when a giant glowing red pheasant was seen hovering in the skies above that island nation. The first detailed image of the region surrounding a black hole was released just one year ago. Now a new technique promises to revolutionize how these images are taken. This new method could assist astronomers in learning more about these enigmatic objects through a study of intricate rings surrounding black holes. Researchers at the Center for Astrophysics Harvard and Smithsonian believe their new technique could reveal secrets about black holes including their spin, angular momentum, and size. Lunar colonies will need to protect occupants from extreme temperature changes along with the vacuum of space and meteors. Building dense walls capable of doing this would entail bringing vast quantities of material to the moon at significant expense. However, researchers at the Polytechnic University of Cartagena have recently developed a new method to mix the lunar crust with human urine, producing a building material which can be shaped into sturdy colonies capable of supporting life using 3D printers. NASA, China, and Europe are all currently aiming to put people on the moon in the coming decades. Ancient texts from Japan tell the story of lights resembling a giant red pheasant appearing in the skies over that island nation in the year 620. Since that time, astronomers, meteorologists, and other scientists have puzzled over what caused the display. This site did not last long enough to be a comet, and those objects are either white, yellow, or green, not red. And although aurora can be red, Japan is not well placed to see northern lights forming into shapes resembling pheasants. A new study, however, reveals that 1400 years ago, the magnetic equator of Earth was placed in a position allowing Aurora to take the shape described in ancient records, potentially explaining the mysterious phenomenon. On this week's podcast episode of Astronomy News with the Cosmic Companion, I interviewed Dr. Pedro Bernardinelli of the University of Pennsylvania, lead researcher on a study which recently found 316 minor planets beyond Neptune. Welcome to the show. Hi, James. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so what, what inspired this study? What, what led to all these discoveries? Uh, all right. So uh, one of the things is that uh, we already had this data set. The DES is a large project, project uh, aimed towards cosmology. So this data was just lying around, and people originally thought it was not suited for sources and science because we don't have a great observing cadence for this type of study. Uh, we observe virtually every two weeks. 
a given spot on the sky and most uh, other star system projects, they have multiple images taken on the same night. However, the data was there and we decided to try to figure out a way of doing this. And we have a lot of area on the sky. It's effectively one eighth of the sky. So, and it goes very deep so we can find very faint things. So why not try it, right? Right, right. And for people who are not familiar, uh, can you tell people a little bit about what the Dark Energy Survey is, and you know some of the some of the uh, other things that may made this study ideal for finding what you found. All right. Uh, so the Dark Energy Survey, uh, it's a project that is that took images between 2013 and 2019. Uh, it's using the Blanco Telescope in the Cerro Observatory in Chile. Uh, it's a large collaboration. We have people from eight different countries. And the main goals of the project are to study the nature of dark matter and dark energy. So it's a galaxy survey and it's covered this uh, one eighth of the sky. And the end part of the Diaz will be a bunch of images that stack every single image that was taken uh, of any given location on the sky. And people are going to measure uh, galaxies there. Uh, it makes it well suited for sources of science because. First of all, we have a lot of area, and the more area you have, the more things you find. Right. Uh, second, we have a large uh, coverage of the uh, south of the ecliptic plane, so we are able to find things of very high inclination, so things that no one has ever found before, because there was no uh, large sources and projects uh, to the south of the ecliptic. And uh, I think that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Super. So, so what do we know about these about these objects? Are they just pinpoints in the data? Do we have any idea as to their size, characteristics, composition, anything like that? Uh, so, initially, they're just uh, pinpoints in the data, as you said. Uh, we have things that are 150 kilometers in diameter and beyond. So, those numbers are not very exact because. The size of these objects depend on a bunch of things. The first one is how close they are to Earth and to the Sun. So these things are all 30 AU or farther, so vacuum's distance. Mm -hmm. uh, then how bright they are. And how bright they are depends on two factors. One of them is the size, because it's reflective light, so it's how much light they reflect from the Sun. And the other one is the albedo, so what percentage of light is reflected. Using uh, nominal values for the albedo, we have this 150-kilometer range. Wow. Uh, wow. And you said uh, composition, right? Correct, yeah. Uh, so these things are mostly icy, so they have some ammonia in them, they have some water ice, but we can't really tell much yet with our data. We can't tell the composition of individual objects because we just have uh, photometric data, so we just have how bright they are at a given uh, range of wavelengths, but we can do a color study, and these color studies can give some global properties, but not fine uh, properties. And what are you finding with the, with the, the global studies that you've done so far? Uh, we didn't check compositions yet. This is going to be one of the next projects we're going to do. Uh, right now, the major thing we did was just try to figure out a way of discovering these things. Uh, mm -hmm. One of the first things we tackled, and there's a paper on that coming out uh, pretty soon in our archive about it, is study the alignment of 
the extreme transcendent object. So this is related to the planet nine hypothesis. And what we did is we tried to see if we can see alignment in our data or not. And the answer is we do not see alignment, hmm. which is a very tricky result because the one of the key predictions of the planet nine hypothesis is that these things are aligned. Uh, the answer is very tricky because the fact that we do not see alignment doesn't mean that there is no planet nine, but rather that we can't see the alignment if it was there. Interesting. Interesting. And so what is yeah. your what what is your gut feeling about the possibility of a ninth planet out there? Uh I think it's still a little bit hard to say anything very definitely because while we have some ideas of the alignment, uh, the two large data sets that have a well-characterized sample and did an analysis of these objects, one of these is Diaz, the other one is a survey called Alphos. We only mm -hmm. had uh, nine and seven objects respectively. So kind of hard to do statistics with seven things in your data. Right. So, but on the other hand, there are many things that are very hard to explain in the outer solar system. So, for example, objects with very high inclination, objects in retrograde orbits, so they're obviously uh, the other way that everything else is, or even this uh, extreme TNOs that have these uh, crazy orbits that we don't really have a good idea of how to form them. So, there might be phenomena that we still don't understand in the outer solar system, but it might or might not be planet nine. Right. And, you know, this kind of is a answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 that's great. That's great, very informative. Um, you know, talking about the you know, the formation, you know, the study had talked about um how some of these trans Neptunian objects, uh the characteristics and the composition of them could differ depending on how close they were to the sun when it formed when they formed. Uh so can you give us a little rundown on how these objects formed and yep. uh, why they all went out to the edge of the solar system to form the Kuiper belt? Are they doing a solar system version of solar of uh, social distancing or? <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. So the idea is that when the solar system formed, um, it was a disk of gas, and then the planets formed, and then there were things that did not manage to form planets. So these rocks, these things eventually become rocks and uh, form weird shapes and then become the uh, Kuiper belt objects. So these things formed in many different places on the solar system. Some things formed colder, some things formed farther. And then uh, the four giant planets went into a very uh, unstable period where they were migrating to where they currently are. So they formed closer to the sun than they are now. And when this, this is especially true for Neptune, uh, the other ones have a little bit different formation history. But then uh, Neptune and the other planets start going, uh, farther, start getting farther from the sun. And when they, when they do this migration process, they kick uh, the smaller objects out towards the Kuiper belt. And on the Kuiper belt, there was already uh, a few things. So this two populations mix. And then you have uh, what we now know as the Kuiper Belt. So the difference is that if a thing spends uh, time closer to the sun, its surface will take some damage from being 
just too hot. And then when it goes to a colder uh, area of the solar system, this means uh, all of its ices and whatever uh, freeze again. And then it has a different surface composition and things that uh, never had ice or whatever melt. Wow. And uh, so you touched on this a little bit, but what are your, what are the biggest questions you still have about this, about the Kuiper belt and the trans-Neptunian objects? And what studies are you and other astronomers um, hoping to carry out in the future to answer those questions? Uh, that's a great question. So first of all, yeah, uh, the first thing is, is there a planet nine? And if not, how do these things formed? How do things that uh, led to the original formulation of the planet nine idea formed? And if there is a planet nine, how did planet nine form? So this is just a, uh, if there is something out there, we still have to uh, understand a lot about it. Uh, also, there is a bunch of very high inclination objects that I particularly find very interesting because a thing having high inclination means that there was some uh, dynamical events that kicked it into a high inclination. So if we have a very large population of these objects, what are the details of the formation of the source system that things like this form? Uh, I'm also particularly interested in one of the subpopulations of the Kuiper Belt. It's called the detached population. And uh, this population is the farthest uh, we have from the sun. So they have the highest uh, perihelia, so they don't, don't get as close to the sun as the rest of the Kuiper Belt does. And there is a lot we don't know yet about them. Uh, in particular, because some objects seem to be very close to a resonance with Neptune, like we see in the uh, in the Kuiper Belt, and while they are very close to a resonance, they are not in resonance. So, hmm. understanding the details of how much we have of these objects versus things that are really resonant, and if it's related to our deformed of the solar system and etc., is one of the things that I plan to do. Uh, That's super. With, the, with our data. All right. And is there anything else that people should really, that you'd really like people to understand about about the Kuiper Belt and about these objects? Uh, let me think. Uh, I think it's kind of cool to see that there's a lot of stuff uh, out there in the solar system. Uh, I gave a few outreach talks, and I always start with this idea that when I was a kid, I thought there were uh, only eight or nine planets in the solar system, but it turned mm -hmm. out there's a lot of stuff out there. And there's a lot of stuff we still don't know about. So, for example, there's the Oort Cloud, which uh, is farther from, from the sun of the Kuiper Belt. So we are starting to see objects from what is called the inner Oort Cloud we observed. So these are things that are not really on the Kuiper Belt, but they're not in the super distant orbits that we have for uh, the Oort Cloud. So this is the thing that you will start to see in the next few years, especially with um, LSST coming live in 2022, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, so you'll start seeing many objects being discovered and hopefully we'll get some very uh, deep new insights on how the source is informed and what is in the outer regions of it. Super.
Super. Well, thank you very much, Pedro. It's great having you on the show. Thank and... you for Please, stay safe, stay healthy, and keep your wonder alive. If you enjoyed this episode of The Cosmic Companion, please download and share the episode on YouTube or on any major podcast provider. We have a new page for updates about Comet Atlas at cometatlas.info. For more details on space and astronomy news, please visit thecosmiccompanion.net. Thank mm-hmm. you.